As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Authenticity, transparency, and vulnerability. You've heard me talk about this on the show many times. They, they are the keys, I think, to unlocking the compassionate side of leadership. You hear me talk about the five C's, composed, confident, consistent, courageous, and compassionate. And unlocking the compassionate side is authenticity, transparency, and vulnerability. My guest today, Lisa Lampanelli, she exhibits this. She lives this authentic, transparent, vulnerable it's the reason why she was so successful as a comedian. I've followed her for a long time, been a fan of her. You probably have seen her. She was so good at roasting people. You know, she got into comedy late, I found out. You know, not until she was in her 30s. You know, she was a journalist, made a courageous leap, got into comedy, was very good at it. A career that spanned more than 30 years. Was a constant on the comedy scene. Numerous tours, Grammy nominations, national TV guest appearances. So many specials. She made headlines in 2012 when she lost more than 100 pounds with the help of bariatric surgery. She went on to speak, again, in this authentic, transparent, and vulnerable way of how her lifelong food and body image issues. And she's gone from insulter to inspirer. She was kind of known, I think, as the queen of mean. I think some of the people kind of label that as. And she walked away from stand-up comedy. I remember I was listening to the Howard Stern Show in 2018 where she announced this. She walked away from being an insult comic and started performing in storytelling shows and, and being this inspiration. She's got a great podcast out there with fellow comedians Bo McDowell and Nick Scopoletti. And I've been listening to it, and it's really fun to listen to. Basically, the idea is for the first half of the podcast, you've got these two young comedians, up-and-coming comedians, Nick and Bo, and they're talking amongst themselves about the things that they suck at life about. It's really pretty pretty fun, you know, about trying to figure out why nothing's ever enough. They talk about the deadly sin of envy, honoring boundaries. So they talk about it for 30 minutes, and then Lisa comes in about halfway show and gives her kind of consultation, if you will. And it's so fun. It's funny, but it's at the same time, it's just, it's truth-telling. And I, I, I really enjoy this podcast. It's fairly new, and I encourage you guys to go check it out. It's called Losers with a Dream. You can find it in all your favorite podcast applications. But Lisa is a true gem. And this was a really fun conversation for me. It's very impactful. She's very inspirational. Again, we talk about courage, about taking that, those leaps 
And she's, she did it twice in grand fashion, going from a journalist, getting the stand-up comedy, then walking away from it at the top of her game. And now she's this, this voice of inspiration. I was so thrilled that she came on the show and they all becoming my favorite. And I just was so grateful she came on the show. I think we had, it was a really value-packed conversation. Hey, if you haven't done so, go take the time to follow me on your favorite podcast application. If you're new to the Dose of Leadership, We've been doing this almost nine years, almost 500 episodes. It does wonders when you write a review. Apple Podcast does not make it easy, but the best way to do it is if you got an iPhone and you can go to the podcast application, the free podcast application, and search for Dose of Leadership, even if you're following it, and type my name up in the ser- after you hit the search button. And then when my podcast artwork comes up, click on it, and then scroll to the bottom, and there's an area called Reviews, and you can got a little hyperlink there called Write a Review. I would appreciate it. If you would uh, feel, take the time, if you're finding value in the show, to put a five-star review out there, it means the world to me. And if um, you do one, send me an email at richard.doseofleadership.com. Let me know you sent a review on there, and then I'll read it on the air. Anything you can do to help me in this competitive podcasting world of almost three million podcasts, it would, it would do wonders. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, Asombroso Tequila trusted family-owned and operated company producing tequila for many years. They've perfected the unique time-honored craft of producing what many consider the best tequila in the world. I like their La Rosa Reposado, which is aged in Bordeaux wine barrels, which makes this pink tequila, pink hue, and their Grand Reserva Ulta Añejo, aged in French oak casks. Each tequila is as unique as it is flavorful. You can find Awesome Broso on their purchasing site, atequila.com. That's the letter A, tequila.com. And if you're listening to this, use discount code LEGEND, and you're going to receive 10% off your first order. Shipped right to your door. Holidays are coming up. This is great stuff, guys. I love it. It's going to blow your mind. Really good stuff. Go check out Asombroso Tequila. All right, let's get on with this great, impactful conversation with the one and only Lisa Lampanelli here on Dose of Leadership. can't believe it. Lisa Lampanelli on Dose of Leadership. Welcome. Oh, you are so lucky right now. Enjoy the best I, 45 I, minutes you, of your life. When I started this podcast, I never would have thought I would have had a Lisa Lampanelli on here. That's just what it's, but it's, that's, that's what's so great about podcasting, right? I mean, you know, you've got a podcast, the power of the podcast. I think when people start it, they, it, it's for one thing, but then when you start doing it, it turns into another. I don't, does that make sense? Yeah. It's really interesting because everyone I know who started a podcast with just the goal of having fun, uh, bonding with people, connecting with an audience, no matter how small, ends up being really happy, at least about doing it, or really successful financially. So I'm like, I mean, at the worst, what could happen? You have 10 listeners and you have fun. To me, that's a win. For sure. Well, I'm a fan of you a long time ago, obviously from the roasting and the stand-up comedy and there was this, and then you switched, you know, 2018, I was listening to Howard Stern that day that you announced it. Yeah. And I was, I, I was so intrigued when you were on there. I felt bad. It seemed like Howard was kind of, I'm not trying to pick on Howard, but it seemed like he was, he was trying to talk you out of it. It was almost like, what are you doing? You're making a big mistake. I got that <laughs> vibe from him. I'm sure you got a lot of that from your, from your, your friends, right? Well, the thing is people can't imagine quitting something that, they wanted to make a living at, but didn't yet. So for instance, if I say to a bunch of beginning comics, Mm. you know what? It doesn't fulfill you. Achievement doesn't fill the hole. You got to work on yourself from the inside out. Accomplishments don't make you feel any better about yourself. They'll be like, no, but I would if I could make a living at comedy. And I'm like, you'll see. 
So it's hard for anybody to imagine quitting something that's their dream and they haven't achieved it yet. I think with Howard, he was just like, oh my God, like what is going on? Because, you know, he's not going to retire. Hopefully I'm praying he never retires because what will I do every day for entertainment? But um, I think then <laughs> right. by the end of the conversation, he got it and he was like, oh, if you're not having joy in your life, yeah. like what are you doing? And uh, it's just weird to quit something that's an art form, I think. I, I think I kind of got it in this in this sense, and that I I was in the I was a pilot in the Marine Corps in the nineties and the early two thousands. I got mm -hmm. out, and I remember when we were in there, in the squadron, and on the road with these people. It was the most the conversations were the most vulgar, <laughs> vile, politically incorrect, but hilarious. I mean, this gut wrenching laughter with around these people, like sitting around when you're done from a, a long, hard day. And I imagine that's probably what it's like at 3 a.m. at, you know, some restaurant, whatever town you're in, you're doing stand up comedy, you get a bunch of stand up comics around. It's this brutal, but you probably never laughed so hard in your life, right? Well, yeah, my favorite times of comedy of all time were sitting around when I first started the first couple of years, you're sitting around with a bunch of beginners. You're like doing open mics. You're running around trying to get one laugh a set. You're writing and you're saying to each other, oh man, if you don't use it next week, I'm using that one. And I'm like, wow, isn't it interesting how I can retire and recreate that exact thing 30 years later? Because that's what I have with the guys on my podcast. Like yeah. we sit around, plan the episode. We're so excited. We go deep. I, I told them, I said, tell me if you don't want to do a deep podcast, that's also funny and not a funny one, because if you just want to be funny, I don't, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm like evolved past that. I've done funny, but to combine them both, I was like, wow, I can have the same feeling. Like you say that you have in the foxhole. So I love it. I love every second of it. Well, and I think it, the, the difference at where I was going to go with this too, and you kind of answered that question, I think is I know that, but sometimes after I walked away from it, it felt like I was engaging in a vice. Like you felt mm -hmm. kind of gross afterwards sometimes. And like, I remember hearing Nikki Glazer talking about, now she's kind of, you know, she's the up and coming kind of clean. I mean, you've kind of passed the baton to her. I don't know if officially yet, right? But she Love was it. talking about, I think it was on Howard Stern. She was talking about the roasting. And she said, you know, it's so the, the intense and the process, but she said she always feels a little bit gross after it's over. Like she has to take like a week off to decompress. Did you, Does that resonate with you when, when she says that? Um, I understand it. I didn't feel gross after I was just so fucking tired because people don't realize it takes two yeah. months or a month to really work out great haymakers. I mean, once I did my first roast... And every joke was a haymaker. Uh, my one of my guys said to me, "Now I guess you're stuck. Every joke has to be A plus, and that's a lot of pressure." So I never yeah. felt, um, you know, gross or dirty. Only because also I'm older too. I grew up with the Dean Martin roast as a kid. So you know, Nikki's growing up with not that as a model. So and also she has different issues than mm -hmm. I do. Like she's really beautiful and skinny and she's had problem with eating disorders that she talks about. So there's a lot of stuff going on in each of our heads. So I'm going, well, I didn't feel gross or weird. What I started feeling gross and weird about just was my life in general <laughs> after 30 years of traveling around, not connecting with people one-on-one, -on -one, sort of not ever being home, missing family stuff, and just kind of going, ah, oh, 
I'm over it. It's like a mailman. Does a mailman ever get sick of delivering those fucking packages? I bet he does. So he probably retires. <laughs> so I don't see why I can't, you know? No, that's perfect. And I think that it's kind of like, and I think this is why you're so good at it or any comedian, but particularly you is because, and I think all successful comedians bring a level of authenticity, transparency, and vulnerability to the game. I mean, I think that's, that's the requirements for, to be good. Yeah. And you, you're always so authentic, transparent, and vulnerable. And that, I think that just helps with the shift. I mean, that, that can make you a rock star in that realm. I mean, I'm seeing it in the podcast that you're talking about. It's such a great, you know, you got these two guys, uh, Nick and Bo, talking at the beginning about, you know, life and these yeah. things that they're struggling with as young 30-year-olds. And then you kind of come in there with this this kind of brutal authenticity and, and school them up. But it, but there's a there's an umbrella of love over, overarching that. I mean, I can see it. I mean, and, and, and there's, every time that you kind of hitting them with this kind of sting, it, it's a love punch. That, that's how I see it anyway. What do you think when you hear me say that? Well, I think you're right because tough love is still love. And you got to really know your boundaries and know when you go too far. I mean, we're lucky that I've actually formed a friendship with these guys where – like literally, I, I bought my parents' house. My mom passed away a few months ago and I bought the house because it's really my home. I just felt like this is where I was supposed to be. Right. So um, I'm not used to like mice and this and that. And this, they're at the level where they're like, do you want us to come and take the dead mouse? And I'm like, wow, like that's friends. So I think when you have good friends, yeah. you joke with them more, but also you know, oh, that area is one I don't want to go in because it, they looked hurt last time. And as a former insult comic, I mean, I had to make it a science to read people in the audience and go, oh, was that too far for that guy? So just being an older comic, I think, helped, too, because you know how you could see on somebody's face when maybe it's stung and you jump to somebody else. So I think my age always helped me in comedy. So I think it helps me with these guys going, oh, I know how to hit them and make fun of them a little bit for their dumb mistakes throughout the week. But also, let's help. Let's move forward and, you know, be serious and have some... You know, a lot of people say they're like, wow, your episode on, say, boundaries really helped me draw a line with my mom or whatever. And you go, well, that's gravy. How lucky are we right. that we're just telling our normal lives and somebody gets helped? It's pretty cool. Yeah, I think I think it's great. It's really cool. I, I was just thinking about this. It popped in my head while you were ta talking. Did you ever get to talk inside baseball with a, with a guy like Rickles? Did you ever get to kind of oh. s swap stories with him at all? Well, I was like not swapping stories because I was, I'm the type, I'm so starstruck by two people, Howard Stern, Don Rickles, anyone else I could give a fuck. But I am telling you, Don Rickles, I was just like, oh, hello, Mr. Rickles. Like it felt like I was some like bellboy mm -hmm. in a hotel, but he was so nice. He gave me great advice that I ignored. He had told me it was so funny. <laughs> I have had me meet up with him in Atlantic City and I saw a show and I felt like, oh my God, I hope he makes fun of me. You know how you, it's an honor to be made fun of by Rickles. <laughs> right, when right. people would say to me, oh, please right. make fun of me. I'd go, oh, that's how Rickles must have felt. So I met him after the show and he was like, you know, I hear you do this thing like I do. That's good. Make sure you work clean. You'll work everywhere. And I'm going, uh-huh, uh-huh. And in my head, I'm going, screw that. I go, I'm dirty. I talk dirty. But <laughs> I loved right. it. And also what I thought was great was that I met him at a book signing that he had when his book came out and he remembered me. So to me, I go, Oh, that's, oh, that's why so he was the greatest insult comic in the world because he had a warmth off stage and that nickname Carson gave him Mr. Warmth was obviously really accurate. So I loved just kind of 
being in his presence for those few times. Yeah. I, well, I just, I was just wondering if you, maybe you studied him. I, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm kind of formulating a thought here because he was so good at being an insult comic, but he was so like, everybody talked about how empathetic and, and loving he was. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's that, and you're that way. I mean, I see that in you and, and just watching your kind of progression and your, and, and what you're trying to do in this authentic way, you emanate this kind of love umbrella like we were talking about before. And I think he did too. Yes. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm overthinking it. No, no, you're 100% right. I've always said with insult comedy, the, I've always said there's so few real insult comics because you got to have that warmth and love in your heart to get away with anything. Like we get away with making fun of our friends. We don't get away with making fun of our enemies. So when there'd be a roast, You'd go, oh, Rickles loves everybody no matter what he said. Same thing with me. It's like I'd hit every race, creed, sexual preference, everything, because Mm -hmm. I kind of embraced everybody. And I'm like, wow, I got really lucky that people knew it was jokes and knew there was love behind it. And you have to have that or else that's why there's very few people who did that or do that. And you're right. And I think that's the reason why you can get away with it because it's coming from, yeah, you know, it's coming from a loving place. Right. And we just want to have a good time and fun. And yeah, my dad always used to say, he's like, it, it, you want to worry about if they're not making fun of you, you know? And that was like the kind of, that was kind of like that when I was in, when I was telling you when I was in the Marine Corps, it's like the guys that weren't made fun of didn't have the call sign, didn't have the thing, you know, yeah. they were kind of, they were kind of alone, which was kind of sad. No. So was the catalyst, I remember you saying that you, so you took care of your father when he was ill mm-hmm. and was that the major catalyst that kind of said, Hey, I'm kind of done with this and I'm, I'm going to go in and, and start. Well, I think now that helping I think others in a different it, way, now that I really think about it, I think the seed was planted, but I didn't really notice it when I did. I had done Carnegie hall may of one year and radio city, September of the same year. So that's a lot of tickets. That's 10,000 seats. And back then, I mean, holy crap. I mean, that's a lot of tickets to sell in the same city. And I felt pretty accomplished because I was always medicating myself with accomplishment to make myself feel better. And um, the promoter said to me after the show, he goes, oh, that was so great. He goes, next, Madison Square Garden. And instead of feeling like empowered, I was like, I literally had this subconscious thought, oh, my God it's never going to be enough. And I think that was the seed that was planted of you're never going to be able to outrun what you're running from with accomplishments. So I bet this is where the down, where it starts, where you're kind of winding down. So of course there's 10 years later and I'm like, you know what? It isn't enough. It's not enough to perform to audiences. It's I want the real connection with real people. So I started putting into a plan of retirement and my father in the meantime had gotten ill and me and my brother and sister took care of him. So I connected more with them and I'm like, Oh, okay. I got to get out of this thing. And this lifestyle is just not, you know, what I want anymore. So I think I just noticed along the way of what I needed to do. I was listening. Your answer there was making me think about what I call the big lie. And it's, we get our self worth based on, and this basically defines the entire human race, but it's, our self-worth is based on what we accomplish and what other people think of us. Right. And I know I'm guilty of that. sounds like you're guilty of that. And for me, it was almost getting, you know, kind of, I was working in the corporate world because I I was a pilot. I got laid off after nine 11 and then I was working 
and everybody's telling me how great I was and like, wow. And I was like, oh, I'm reinventing myself. But that I lost that identity of being a pilot, which was my first mistake. I shouldn't have identified myself as a pilot. I should have, you know, I, that's a role I was playing. Yeah. And when it was taken away, I just overcompensated, much like you probably doing the next gig, the next bigger gig, Carnegie Hall or something. Yeah. Right? And yeah. at some point we we have to get our self-worth, we have to get our self-worth from something else. And so what is it, what is it for you? What, what do you, how do you feel fulfill that that purpose of self-worth? I think we just did an episode on the podcast called Gimme, Gimme, Gimme More. And it was about nothing's ever enough. So unless it's coming from inside, it's called other esteem. So there's self-esteem and other esteem. Other esteem is what we get from dating the pretty girl, dating the quarterback, uh, getting the good grades, having the job, da-da-da. So... I started working on internally going, if it all went away, which it did, because I took it away, am I enough just sitting here? And there's a lot of loss of identity because, oh, you were funny, you're the comic. No, I'm just a human. And it's like, oh my God, I don't do anything. I'm nothing. And I have to be okay with that. Because really at the end of the day, let's be honest, everybody dies alone. Everybody dies with, you know, just themselves and in their house. They don't, they're not surrounded by their trophies and their Oscars and all that crap. You basically have to be okay with who you are. So even if for the next 30 years, all I did was do a little planting in the garden, which I don't do, or walk my dogs or call my, you know, nieces and nephews, that has to be enough or I'm going to always be looking elsewhere. And I think the reason <clears throat> I did the podcast was because I go, oh, this is just fun. This is just that, a hobby. Like other people knit, I talk. So if it went away tomorrow, would I be sad? Of course. But I'm enough on the inside to deal with it. But again, you're no, me and you are no stranger to this. And it's it's just how society's built. You're only somebody if you have this, this, and this. And it's sad that it's true because there's so many people who are worth so much in life as humans, but we just oh, yeah. discount them. Yeah, I think sometimes we overthink like our purpose. People are like, what, what, what am I put on this planet to do? I think the the universal. To, I make it simple, and I think the universal obligation is to is to make the place better than you found it and add value to every transaction, right? That should be enough from a purpose. And then you, then you can start focused on the roles. Well, what, and there's an infinite number of roles to kind of fulfill that purpose, right? Yeah. I mean, starting a podcast, having, having a, a show where you get on stage and stuff, right? You're using your, your comedic and, and performing talents to serve that purpose. Right? And, and I think, I yeah. think also, even if you're not, that's okay. There's such bad, self-help stuff out there about finding your quote purpose or passion and it drives people insane if they don't have one and they go but what they're that's a faulty construct it does it's not true no one needs a purpose with a capital p we need to do every little thing in life with purpose with infusing meaning into it so basically if i tomorrow if i today get off this thing i go to starbucks and I get that cup of coffee with purpose, meaning I'm nice to the guy. I say, hey, how you doing, man? And I'm, thank you. So that was purposeful. I was kind. So 
if I never do anything on stage or the podcast fails, if I am purposeful with the small P, everything I do, then I'm like, wow, that's a full life. And also, you know what I love too? Two of my nephews are PAs in, uh, one's in the ER and one's in surgical. And um, the doctor's credo is first do no harm. If our purpose was literally only every day I'm doing no harm to anyone else, how great would that freaking person be? I mean, I don't think I did any harm today. I will probably by the end of the day because just I'm human and we all need permission to be human. But hopefully, maybe I'll have a full day of doing no harm. That would be really badass. Yeah, I love how you articulated that because that's kind of what I meant by saying if I can just go through the day of like, how can I add value in this transaction and be that intentional about it all the time? Yeah. That's, that's a, that compound over time is a significant life. You know, you don't have to have whatever the dream job or the, the, the dollar figure or the the trophy wife or whatever you're chasing, you know, it's just, that's. Well, you know, my, um, I'll never forget. Oh, sorry. I'll never forget. My uncle died years and years ago. And he was a very humble guy, Greek guy. He was a Yankee fan. He had worked for the gas company. Just totally normal guy, three kids, wife. And played cards. You know, nice, nice, nice guy. And I remember, I will never forget the eulogy in my life. I, I could cry. I might tear up. My cousin said, he goes, there are great men. My father was a great guy. And I'm like, holy crap, to die and have somebody say you're a great guy. When I read obituaries, because I read obituaries now because I love how they're written now. They're written very like personal and like, oh, she loved to do this. She loved to. I read women's all the time. I focus on the women because I'm myself, you know, a woman sometimes. (laughs) So I am reading these. And when they go, she loved this. She loved that. She planned everybody's birthday party. She did that. I'm like, they didn't discover a cure for anything. They didn't, they weren't a world famous actor or stand-up comic, but they touched all those people in their area of life. And I'm like, man, that's a purposeful life. So everyone, if if they can learn anything from yeah. listening to this, to me, it's like, don't sweat the purpose with the capital P. You're fine. You're fine the way yeah. you are. You don't have to try yes. so hard. Amen. Hey, we're about halfway through the conversation, but I got to talk to you about my brand new sponsor, Awesome Broso Tequila. I got to tell you, this stuff is crazy good. It's easy to sip. It's perfect for gifts. I got the holidays coming up. And when I first tasted this tequila, it absolutely blew my mind. We all have bad memories of tequila, but this stuff is out of this world. I love this company. It's a trusted, family-owned and operated company. They've been creating tequila for many years, but they've perfected this unique, time-honored craft, producing what I consider and is considered the best tequila in the world. From their La Rosa Reposado, aged in Bordeaux wine barrels, which creates this really cool pink hue, to their Gran Reserva Alta Añejo, my favorite, which is aged in new French oak casks. Each tequila is as unique as it is flavorful. Asombroso Tequila is honored to have received many awards throughout the years, notably the prestigious Rob Report's Best of the Best and Top Tequila in the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. Although they have acquired many accolades throughout the years, their customers are what matter the most. Their continuous support and reorders are what motivates the driving force to keep producing the world's best tasting tequila year after year. You can't go wrong with this stuff. 
You can find out the complete line of Asombroso tequilas on their purchasing site, atequila.com. That's the letter, atequila.com. Use the discount code LEGEND, and you'll receive 10% off your first order. Go check them out. Asombroso tequila. Really good stuff. You know, I was thinking about my old man. My old man died in 2010. And I remember when I was a teenager, he had a friend. His best friend was this kind of hard-charging entrepreneur and started this big business. And I remember I remember it even it's embarrassing to even admit it now, but I remember thinking, God, I wish my old man was like him. Yeah. You know? And my mm-hmm. dad was just kind of this quiet in, you know, safe, didn't like to take a lot of risks. He was just happy with simple things. And when my old man died, I mean I got and I was close with my dad up to the end. He was just a great, great guy. Right. Mm-hmm. And he simple life didn't want to do anything, didn't want to take a lot of risks, just, you know, peanut butter and crackers type of guy, you know, sitting yeah. in his lounge. It didn't, nothing simple. Yeah. And when he died, I, I couldn't imagine how, I could, it was amazing how many people showed up at his funeral and wow. said that your dad impacted me this way. My dad, your dad was so great at this. He did that. And he had this sharp wow. wit, you know, and like, he would just, he'd be quiet. Like people would be talking and then he would just hit you with this, this one liner. There was like, what the fuck? Where did that come from? Yeah. <laughs> from this yeah. guy, you know, he wow. was just funny that way. But yeah, I just, you're right. You know, he I didn't, he that. didn't chase the big purpose with the capital P. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, yeah. when did that what happen? Is your f- I think my father was very similar, but when did that happen? That suddenly everybody has to have a big effing purpose. Bill Maher did this amazing uh, editorial a couple weeks ago about when did we fall for that we all have to go to college? There's so many people who I think That's it was a the great 50s, question. I think I think it might have been the 50s. He said the Probably. date that it all became popular. Post World War II. Yeah. Yeah. That no one was just happy being and feeling like they were enough. And there's so many people, you know, who are just traumatized by the idea, oh, I'm not going to get into this school or that. And I'm like, if they only knew how successful I was, that I would have been just as successful if I didn't go into college and have all that debt. I'm like, mm-hmm. it's a shame that we're all thinking something else is going to, that we're chasing is going to fulfill us. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it never does. Yeah, it is. I don't know if it's the material. You're right. It's probably post-World War Two. Yeah. You know, and this, yeah. that boom era and, and everybody. Yeah. And, and just, it has colleges become a huge racket. Right. And oh, yeah. People leaving with these 80,000, $120,000 debt. And they're like, what? And I know. A job. And it, I was surprised to read that you didn't really get into stand up comedy until your thirties. You were a journalist mm-hmm. and you decided to make that leap. What, what was the catalyst there? Was it the same thing? You kind of had this gnawing, like this isn't working out. And then what was the draw to stand-up comedy? I was sort of a half-assed journalist, meaning I worked at a bunch of magazines, probably again, to try to fill the hole because they were well-known, like you know, Rolling Stone, Popular Mechanics, Hit Parader, which was a heavy metal magazine. So, I mean, a lot of these magazines were cool. So I was kind of filling the hole with that accomplishment. But then I realized, too, this really isn't, I mean, I'm a good writer. I still am but I'm not that caliber that I would ever be a great. And I, I had uh, always had this annoying thing of like, I should try comedy just once. I mean, just let's see, let's see if it'll work out. And I had this friend at Rolling Stone, Steve Futterman. He was so, he was really funny. And I said to him, Steve, I don't know. I'm thinking I should like try comedy, like an open mic or something. And he goes, Oh, stand-ups are the worst. They're self-centered. It's all about them. And I go, Oh, well, that sounds perfect for me. So I found this other way to get attention, 
and luckily, again, I didn't do any harm to anyone. I probably harmed myself by putting off, like knowing what it's like to not have the attention on you all the time. But I mean, I think um, it really felt great for a while and I was good at it. I enjoyed it until I didn't. I think we all enjoy everything till we don't, you know, and then you just have to notice till we it. Don't. Oh, yeah. yeah. Let me get out before I appear to not care. I love the I love the courage behind both those decisions by jumping into the because you know you hear most successful comedian stories they're doing it when they're seventeen eighteen you know yeah. open mic nights and stuff and here you are in your thirties and you do it and you're good at it and then to have have the courageous choice to kind of walk away when you're kind of on top right it's like nothing major happened you just you courageously just chose hey my, this ain't working this is what I'm gonna do maybe you're embarrassed by the word. Cr- courage but I, I mean we don't do that we don't take the leap and so I, i'm convinced that you know and having 500 plus conversations on the show and talking with people like yourself and who've accomplished some significant things i asked the questions early on in this show to people i've asked like barbara corcoran was one and steve forbes i asked him it came out like when does the fear go away or when is the limiting beliefs when does the negative self-talk go away and they both laughed at me uproariously said it never goes away never never <laughs> that barbara corcoran Barbara Cork. Yeah. So that was, it was almost like that's a cathartic for me, you know, in my, I was in my mid forties when I started the early forties when I started the show, but I was like, finally, I can, I can stop worrying about this negative self-talk and these limiting beliefs that's plaguing my head every day. I just got comfortable with it. Right. Well, it's all about, you know, they talk about in meditation, you notice it and don't judge it. So basically you notice the fear come up. You say, I'm scared. Okay. And I'm not, I'm not into forcing things or quote unquote powering through. I think that's just terrible because that's how I lived for so long, but I think it's going, okay, a little scared. I do always what's the worst that can happen and the best that can happen because it always falls somewhere in between. It's never the best or the worst. Like I'm like, okay, if I start a podcast with these two guys, what's the worst thing that could happen? Nobody listens and we end up hating each other. What's the best thing that can happen Um, financially to have tons of sponsors, to have a hundred million downloads and to help them quit their day jobs. It's probably going to be somewhere in between. We'll have a few listeners. We'll help a few people. We'll have fun. And I still have these guys as friends and anything else is great, but I go to best worst, you know, it's going to be in the middle. Like, it's just interesting how we always go to worst, but forget to think about best and forget to try it. I love that. Yeah. The way you kind of, kind of sandwich it there, that, that should give you enough to take the leap. Mm. And I guess that's the work, the work you're probably doing unconsciously. Maybe you're conscious about it, but I think you're probably, that's just how you've operate now. But I think, I think you can, you know, as you were describing that, I'm like, well, yeah, now I've done that. Why not? I think it's kind of, that's kind of the same thing I did start in this, this podcast. And I, I think, too, what's funny is when I retired from comedy, I literally was like, oh, my God, because at the time I had like three places I lived in. I had to get rid of two of them. I was like, this is ridiculous. Why would I live this way? And one of the houses wasn't selling and it was expensive. And I was like, OK, I'm so mm-hmm. scared this house isn't going to sell. What's the worst that can happen? And I literally said, I can type. I am such a good typist. I type 120 words a minute. It was like this weird gift I got. And I go, at the worst, I can proofread. I'm a great copy editor. I go, okay, look up jobs and just have in your head, hey, 
if God forbid this house doesn't sell and you're stuck working, you do that shit. And it's kind of, we all have those little skills we can do. I can work at Trader Joe's. I can work at Whole Foods. I can uh, do something to scare up some income. And that just at least, it might not help people quit or it might not help people fully move forward, but at least they could start making a list of fallback plans. Because sometimes we need that little evidence that we're going to be okay. Yeah, I love that. I love that a lot, actually. What do you hope to, what is your favorite thing to kind of explore? Well, first, before you answer that question, when you finally walked away from this intentionally and said, okay, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to sit with myself and see who I am, did you, did you like yourself, or did you have to do a lot of work to, to get yourself to like and get comfortable with, with who you were? Because the comedy was kind of as you, I heard. I, I still work on liking myself. I mean, I'll sometimes be like, oh, you're such an idiot about what you said to that person or, oh, you're such a gossip. Like the other day I was gossiping about a friend of mine because he gossips and I don't like it. So in other words, I was saying, complaining that he's a gossip and I'm, I'm what the hell else am I doing? So half the time I'm an idiot. So, I mean, I don't have a ton of, I have more self-love than I had before, but I'm certainly not anywhere near where I'd love to be by the time I die. So I second guess myself a lot. I try to right wrongs. I try to apologize. I try to be caring. I try to look people in the eye, which I find hard. I try to not monopolize the conversation and interrupt, which I always do. So I kind of maybe don't love myself all the time, but I've learned to accept that I got flaws and oh, well, I guess they're no better or worse than anyone else's. And I'll keep being aware of them and hopefully just move incrementally closer to it every day. Yeah. What really uh, drives you now? Like when, when do you feel like you're firing in all, all cylinders? What is your favorite thing to do or maybe even kind of topic to address with somebody or help somebody with what gets you going? I love just sharing my story and seeing if it resonates So if on the podcast, we talk about vulnerability and I told them a story about how I couldn't cry in front of anyone till like the past couple of years, or I say how I screwed up relationships because I, you know, uh, couldn't be vulnerable. I, it lights me up to tell my story, to try not to advice give so much, but I, cause there's too much advice giving in the world. I try to lead by example, telling them what I've been through. But it does light me up to talk about those deep issues like self-acceptance, forgiveness, vulnerability, fear of success. Any deep issue, I will find that one person at the party who's a deep person and go for it all night and just talk and talk and talk. So that kind of stuff cracks me up. And I also believe it or not, you're gonna, you're, I am shocked I'm saying this. I actually started, because I, I call myself the world's oldest millennial because all my friends are in their 30s. So... I was told that in order to promote the podcast that we should go on TikTok, which I have bucked against for years. Well, for a change, I asked for help. I asked this young guy who's really good on TikTok, and I'm like, this is so much fun. So I learned a lesson there. Stop hating things you don't know anything about and demonizing them and ask for freaking help. And then just let go, have fun, and don't expect anything from it. So I don't look at numbers. I don't look at how many times people looked at it. 
it's the the page no but the page is called losers with a dream people could follow it or not if they want to on tiktok and i go isn't that an interesting lesson that if i just look at it as fun it lights me up anything in my life that's not fun in my what i consider fun which is deep conversation silly things on instagram or tiktok or kind of family and friends stuff i'm like why am i doing it like what's the point do you still um, have a circle of comedian friends? I mean, I know Nick and Bo are, com- are comedians, but I mean, do you do you still see a lot of your old, the the old crowd? I guess I don't know who you used to hang out with before. Do you ever stay in in touch with a lot of the older comedians? Well, I was never friends with a lot of comics because um, when I hit, I like got out of the clubs, and I was you know you're at a theater with your opening act, and that's about it. So most of my fan, most of my comedy friends weren't my level. Um, meaning it was always, always people who were coming up, <clears throat> but I think that's a good thing in a way, cause you're kind of helping them and exposing them to things. So I'm really good friends with all my old openers and stuff and these new guys coming up. But I will say we have a couple of comedy clubs near, uh, here. And whenever I see like my friends, like Don Jameson, Jim Florentine, uh, Rich Boss, um, JB Smoove, um, Brad Williams, who I love when I see they're going to be there, I'm like, Oh dude. I'm going to go over there. And that's really fun because you could talk about what you're doing now in the old days and all that. So that's kind of sweet. When you see it, do you ever, do you ever get the itching to, to grab the mic and go up and do like a, a set or? No, I mean, I, I would always, if somebody would say to me, can you introduce me? Cause someone once did that for me, like a really famous guy came to one of my shows and I was like, Oh my God, could you like introduce me? And he said, of course. And it felt good. So if they, anything like that's fine. And we also were going to do a couple of live podcast recordings at comedy clubs or theaters. And that's fun. That's a cute experiment. So that stuff, yeah. But, you know, the stand-up itself, it's like I pretty much can 99% predict I won't do it any again after, you know, several years. Like I'm not going to have the resurgence like share. Um, but you never know. But it, it never hits me. Like, oh, my God, I want to do that. Like it never hits me as something that would be fun. So do you like to help people one-on-one or is it, or are you primarily focused? Do you think that your medium is just like doing like the, the shows, like doing the, the, the kind of writing the authentic shows and having people come? Is that, is that the medium or, or is it one-on-one part of your repertoire too? Yeah. I like the one-on-one with the people on the podcast. I also do a segment on Adam Carolla has um, a bunch of podcasts under his umbrella And there's a show I call into once a week Mm -hmm. and me and I help these two women who are, you know, young and struggling. They're kind of like Bo and Nick, but on the West Coast and they're women. And um, I like that kind of one-on-one, but I tried to be a coach for a little while and comedy coach is fine. I'm great at that. I could tell people how to make their jokes better and their act and everything, but helping people through problems as a paid thing, I'm not patient. I like people to go at my pace it's the exact wrong thing in coaching. I want you to do it how I say and not have your own journey. So I just go, nah, that's not for me. So I stay away from that. But if a friend calls, I'm all in with advice. I love that. All in. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. That one-on-one coaching thing is it's challenging, right? To sit there and you want to jump in and just tell them, we'll do it this way. And you're not supposed to do that as a coach. You're supposed to, they're supposed to find it themselves. You just need to help them extract. It is challenging. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. 
I think it's great to having that freedom, freedom to, particularly if you're good at writing and, and to come up with those shows. I think that would be fun. If, yeah, if you, we have a blast. Know, seems like it would be fun. And it seemed like, and it seemed like it would be somewhat cathartic. I'm wondering, I've heard comedians, talk, we, we all know that, like the, the great comedians bring their, their real life challenges onto the stage and they work through them. Was it cathartic to kind of air it, air out who you were on the stage all those years that it felt good, right? Well, I don't think I did that till the last few years. I think I, you know, as an insult comic, I was able to sort of like have a character or I brought like 10% of me. And then the last five years or so, it was about 70% of me, which I thought was cool. Um, when I wrote a play that was off Broadway for a couple of seasons, I brought more of it. So now really with the podcast, I'm bringing like 90% and of myself to it. The 10%, I guess, is the part that's quiet and sad and, you know, has their grief and whatever. But um, I like that it's getting more and more vulnerable and I, people can see more and more of me. And it really doesn't even matter if they can see it. If I'm not afraid to talk about stuff, it feels a lot better. I do think that is your strength. And I do think that is the strength of the podcast that you're, you're creating is, is that vulnerability, that authenticity, authenticity, the transparency, the vulnerability. I think that is the key. I think that is that, that is, that's the key that unlocks all of that. And there's tremendous mm -hmm. power in that. So thank you. I think it's great. What's, so what's new, what's, what's down the road? You got the podcast. What, what's the dream now? What are you hoping to accomplish? I know you're, I know that kind of violates our conversation about the big P, but I mean, if, if you, if you kind of look down the road, what are you hoping? Yeah. Um, nothing except I hope to have more personal one-on-one -on -one connections, meaning um, stronger friendships, which are building um, stronger relationships with family, um, being that person, somebody calls in an emergency. I would love that. Like if somebody's like, Oh my God, I'm stuck at the side of the road. Oh my God, call Lisa. I want to be that person. I want to have a really good relationship with my nieces and nephews. I want my dogs to be, not afterthoughts and really get a lot of love for me. So yeah, I mean, we're going to experiment on doing the podcast live. I, you know, I want to do it because the guys need to make money. That's great. Um, but I don't have anything. I don't need a big purpose. I just need those, all those small P purposes and cobble together this little life that you lead and just kind of have fun with it and not sweat the big, Oh my God, I'm ignoring my gift. Who cares? Like, calm down. Watch TV for a minute, will you? Take a minute. Breathe. <laughs> I love it. I love that. I love that. I love the way you look at life. And I think that's something we can all kind of walk away with. I, again, that's a huge part of why I'm a fan of. I've loved watching your transition. Again, I love the courage that you took to take the leap. I love, again, the authentic vibe that, that you bring off. And um, I love what you're doing. And um, well, so, how can you. people learn more about what you're doing? How can they? How can they connect with you? How can they learn more about the the new podcast? Yeah, um, they can go to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, everywhere. Their podcasts um, in the it's called Losers with a Dream, and we're also on TikTok, Losers with a Dream, and also on social media. I'm at Lisa Lampanelli. I always say if they can't spell my name, they don't deserve to follow me. So that's my. Life. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Lisa, I'll have links to all of this on the post notes. Guys, go check her stuff out. I'm a huge fan, Lisa. I can't believe you came on. I'm so glad you came on. Oh. I hope we stay in touch. I think you're I think you're a, a true gem. You're a true gem. Oh, thank you so much. And hey man, you know, you're you were really you brought it today. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. I do a lot of these 
And I'm like, oh my God, I wasn't bored. This is really good for you. <laughs> well, thanks. That, that means a lot, Lisa. I appreciate that. Thank you for coming on the show. Cool. Thank you, man. God bless. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse, tell your kids, tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that Dose of Leadership brings to your world. Go to doseofleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we're together. And until the meantime, make it a great one. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.